Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Thank you for all the prayers about my kidney stones. If you can avoid getting those, do that. I'll be honest with you this morning. I would imagine that even the most determined Bible readers begin to waver when they reach 1 Kings chapter 5. They may find it hard to even fake interest in three chapters about temple construction. They look up on it as Americans view highway construction or repair. You endure how many miles you have to do in order to get beyond it. It's chapters like this that cause some to wonder if Paul was really serious when he wrote that whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. Yet Paul was right. Sometimes inspiration by the Spirit demands perspiration from us. In other words, sometimes you have to dig a little deeper to mine the treasures of God's Word. For a quick review, in chapter 3, the king used his God-given gift of wisdom to resolve a life-and-death dispute between two prostitutes. In chapter 4, Solomon exercised wisdom in organizing his kingdom as well as participating in the arts and the sciences. The chapter ended by celebrating the king's international reputation for superior wisdom as rulers from many nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. This morning, chapter 5 continues this theme by showing Solomon's wisdom for international relations. We come now to the beginning of the Bible's account of King Solomon's highest achievement. And the greatest display of the wisdom given to him by God, which is the construction of the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. Of the 11 chapters in 1 Kings that cover Solomon's life, the first four are taken up with this one subject. Look at verse 1 with me. Now Hiram king of Tyre sent his servants to Solomon when he heard they had anointed him king in place of his father, for Hiram had always been a friend of David. First off, you may be wondering, who was Hiram and why would he help Solomon? Hiram ruled the capital of Phoenicia for over 30 years from David's old age until he and David were both veteran kings. Hiram did what many others did. He sent servants, I think today we would call them diplomats, to visit Solomon. Hiram's envoy probably came with good wishes for the new king. Now, this was not unusual. The death of a king and the successor of his successor, the ascension of his successor, typically created potential tensions and misunderstandings. Good relations could not be just assumed with the new king. So this was and is standard protocol for diplomatic relations. When a new leader comes to power, other world leaders send formal greetings to renew their friendly relationship between the two countries. These well-wishers came from the coastal city of Tyre, which was a capital of Sidonians, also known as the Phoenicians. As a neighboring kingdom, it was only natural for these neighbors to pay a visit, especially since King Hiram had been on such friendly terms with David. In fact, Hiram had graciously provided David with the materials and labor that he needed to build his personal palace many years before. Verse 2, please. Then Solomon sent word to Hiram, saying, 
You know that David, my father, was unable to build a house for the name of the Lord his God because of the wars which surrounded him until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. Psalm 132 says, I certainly will not enter my house nor lie on my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the Mighty One of Jacob. So wrote King David, for it was his passionate desire to build a temple for the glory of the Lord. To the end of his days, David's only unsatisfied desire and unfulfilled ambition was to build a house for God. The king had always felt that there was something wrong about him having his own house of cedar while God was still living in a tent. Thus it was in his heart to build a rest for the Ark of the Covenant of God. In the hope of building that temple, David purchased a prime piece of real estate and began to make plans for its construction. He bought the sacred Ark of the, of the Holy Covenant up to Jerusalem. And before his death, he collected many of the materials that were needed for construction. Things like wood and stone, gold and silver, and iron and bronze. And when I say many, I mean many. As he anticipated the building of the temple, David had set aside some of the spoils of battle, especially for the Lord. This amounted to 3,750 tons of gold, 37,500 tons of silver, and an unmeasured amount of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. First Chronicles 28 tells us that all this wealth that he, pre he, he presented it publicly to Solomon. David also added his own personal treasure, and then he invited the leaders of the nations to also contribute as well. The final totals were 4,050 tons of gold, over 38,000 tons of silver, not to mention thousands and thousands of tons of bronze and iron, as well as precious stones. It was a great beginning for a great project. The prophet Nathan had came to him with the divine declaration that it has become known as the Davidic covenant when he said these words. The Lord himself will establish a house for you, and I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, and your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me, and your throne will be established forever. At the same time, the Lord said something more. Your offspring who will come from your own body, he will be the one who will build my house for my name. So the temple will not be built by David. The privilege would go to David's son. Solomon was that son, and the building of that house became the defining project of his, the early years of his reign. But David had a dream. He would build a place of worship worthy of his God. So Jerusalem would not only become the political capital, but also the spiritual capital of the nation. David's desire was grounded in the fact that through Moses, God had given the nation of Israel a place and pattern of worship that had centered on the tabernacle. 
Israel did not invent its own religious system, but God revealed it to them. But the tabernacle was a portable building designed to be transported through the wilderness. And by David and Solomon's time, the tabernacle was more than 400 years old. Time and spiritual failure meant that it had become neglected and dilapidated. Now this aroused a holy desire in David's heart to make things right and to put God's worship at the center of a nation in a building that was worthy of him. However, worthy as that desire seemed, it was not God's will for David. David was not to build a house for God, but God would build a house, or we could say a living dynasty for David. You see, even though David had fought many battles in the name of the Lord, he was still a man of war and not a man of peace. Thus, it was impossible and not suitable for him to build God's holy temple. Why? Because the temple would be the place where you can make peace with God. This may help to put some of our own disappointments in perspective. We all have things that we hope to accomplish in this lifetime. Some of our dreams have not yet become realities, and sometimes we doubt that they ever will. And not to put too fine a point on it, but some of them are going to be just that. They're going to be dreams. For instance, I'm likely never going to be a professional jazz guitarist. Most likely, I'm going to retire from the post office and then pastor this church until I die or you put me in a nursing home. <laughs> but with that said, where, where our ambitions coincide with the will of God, we should continue to pursue those. But sometimes God will say no, just as he said no to David, even for things that are good in and of themselves, and even those things that we want to do for the glory of God. When this happens, we should follow David's example by accepting no for an answer. We should also take the long view of the kingdom and help other people to do the work that God has called them to do. Raise yourself here. Even if it happens to be the very work that we were hoping to do. We must make sure that we do not decide that we're going to su succeed at any cost. Because if we decide to succeed without succeeding in God's way, things are not going to work out for us. But if we go on from day to day seeking to do His will, we shall be prepared to receive success from Him if He wills it. And then if He does not will it, we are to be able to say, just like David, it is God's decision that I do not build the temple. That's what the Bible calls Christian maturity. And it can be a very difficult thing to embrace. Look at verse 4 with me. 
But now the Lord my God has secured me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor misfortune. So behold, I intend to build a house in the name of the Lord my God. Just as the Lord spoke to David my father, saying, Your son, whom I shall put on your throne in your place, he will build a house for my name. Solomon's but now at the beginning of verse 4 anticipated the great but now of Jesus where we read in Ephesians 2:13 but now in Christ Jesus you who were once far who you who were once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ that means our great adversary Satan himself has been defeated and the rest that was enjoyed by Solomon is now a shadow of the rest that Jesus gives every believer. Verse 4 says, The house is to be built only when the Lord gives rest from all your enemies. In other words, not until the Lord has put all the enemies under the soles of his feet. Since the day of Moses, the people had brought their sacrifices and offering to the tabernacle. But now they were no longer a pilgrim people. They had settled in their own land. And remember, as I said, the tabernacle was a fragile, portable building. And the time has come for Israel to build a temple to their great God. Especially since the nations around them had temples dedicated to their false gods. So it was only right that the people of Israel dedicate a magnificent temple to honor the true and the living God. Notice Solomon's motivation in verse 5. He did not build this temple for political reasons, hoping to unify the 12 tribes of his kingdom. He did not build it for financial reasons, thinking that a project of this magnitude would strengthen Israel's economy. He did not build it for personal reasons, desiring to build something that people remember and bring glory to his own name. No, Solomon built this temple for the best of all reasons. He did it for the name of the Lord his God. What is the desire or the purpose of your heart this morning? What is the motivation that lies behind what you do with your time and your money, your body and your soul, and your present and your future? The Apostle Paul said, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That should become the spiritual test for everything in our lives. Am I doing what I am doing for the glory of God? Like King Solomon, we are called to serve in God's kingdom. Therefore, we must make it our ambition to pursue His glory in everything that we do. That should be our ambition at work tomorrow, to glorify God in the faithful ways that we use our time for our employers in the encouraging way that we treat our co-workers, and the honest way that we do business. That should be our desire at home, to treat our family and friends the way a godly person should treat them, even if we are having conflict and are under a whole lot of stress. That should be our ministry in the church. You see, as soon as we start to think of Christian service as mainly something that meets our own personal needs, then we are bound to give up when the going gets tough or when we get angry that our work is not being appreciated. 
Gil Irwin says, One way to know if you are truly a servant of God is how do you act if someone treats you like a servant? Do we bow up and say, Hey, you can't treat me like that. Or do we, for the sake of Christ and by His example, consider others better than ourselves? But if what we do in serving others is really for the Lord, then we can be sure He will give us the grace and strength to persevere in that. Solomon's motivation for building the temple ought to be the motivation for everything that we do in the kingdom of God. When we seek the glory of God, then we are always able to say, I am doing this in the name of the Lord. That is a good way to test the decisions we make every day about what we eat, buy, watch, wear, and touch. Unless we are able to say with a straight face and a good conscience, this is for the glory of God, then it would be better for us to do something else entirely. Back to our text. When Solomon became king, he inherited everything his father David had had. And that included both enemies and allies. And Solomon, ever the wise politician, wasn't about to let that alliance grow stale. In a move that would provide enormous dividends, he sent the following letter to Hiram. King Solomon said, I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. Did you know that the Lord Jesus is also building a house that is both like and unlike the house that Solomon built? You see, it is a spiritual house. In other words, it's not a physical house of wood and stone, but a house made up of those people sitting next to you. And when we come to the Lord Jesus, we are stones that he puts in that building. The Lord Jesus himself being the precious cornerstone. Peter wonderfully described all of this when he wrote, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will never be put to shame. So the honor is to you who believe. We will learn more about the honor of being a stone in a spiritual house as we hear more about Solomon's what he built in Jerusalem. Solomon's building was grand and important. It represented the wisdom of God given to the king, the peace that was now possible between the nations, and the rest that God had given Israel from all of her enemies. But the house of Solomon did build did not last. So Jesus' building is something that is infinitely greater. He said... I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You know what happened when you became a Christian? You came to Jesus and became a living stone in the most important building in the history 
of everything. This is an honor beyond description. In addition to that, one of the ways to the superior greatness of Christ is to consider what he said himself about the temple of God. Jesus always loved to go to the temple. Not the one that Solomon built, but the second temple, which was built after the exile in Babylon. Jesus went there as a young boy and called it my father's house. He often visited the temple when he went up to Jerusalem for worship right up to the last week of his earthly life when he was teaching daily in the temple. Now one year at Passover, when he was teaching at the temple, Jesus made an extraordinary prophecy. He said, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in just three days. People thought, well, this is preposterous, of course. It had taken half a century to build this temple. How could anyone possibly tear it down and then rebuild it in just three days? The gospel gives us the answer when it says that Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. And so the word temple is an appropriate word to use for the physical body of Jesus Christ. You say temple is a dwelling place for God. It's a place where God lives. Thus Solomon would often refer to the temple as the house of God. But since Jesus Christ is God incarnate, since he is not just merely human, but also divine, his physical body is a temple. The body of Christ is the true temple as it was the dwelling place for God. Now there are many spiritual, theological, and practical connections to make between Solomon's temple and the bodily temple of Jesus Christ. But perhaps the best place to begin is in 1 Kings 5, and that's the materials of the construction. Solomon's temple was made of cedar and stone obtained by costly labor. The temple of Christ's body, by contrast, was made of flesh and blood. Consider how amazing it is that in coming to the world, God the Son would choose a physical body for his dwelling place. I don't know how old you are, but this is hardly what we would choose for our dwelling place. A body that can bruise and bleed and suffer before it dies. Why not choose something more permanent like a diamond or more impregnable like a granite mountain? Better yet, why not come into the world as some kind of Superman with a body so strong it can never be nailed to a tree? Yet, when Jesus came to dwell with us, he took for his material the weakness of our human flesh. Then Jesus took the temple of his physical body and offered it as a sacrifice for our sin, given himself for our salvation. Like Solomon, Jesus did this for the best of reasons. He did it to honor the name of the Lord. In doing his kingdom work, he was motivated by his Father's glory, which is another way of saying, I am doing this in the name of the Lord. Jesus used the temple of his body to glorify God. In the supremely selfless sacrifice of his death on the cross, he glorified God by saving his people. Now, God is busy working on a new construction project. It's another temple, constructed with even more surprising building materials. 
This temple is not physical but spiritual because now God's dwelling place in the world is the church. Not as a physical building, but as a living community. Thus, the New Testament often uses temple language to describe the church of God. As Paul wrote to the Corinthians, we are the temple of the living God. Surely, this is the least likely material anyone has ever used for a major construction project. What could be more difficult than working with people in the church? We are not beautiful like cedar, but often ugly in our sin. We are not solid like stone, but sometimes weak and unstable. Nevertheless, God is using us to build a holy temple, a spiritual house, in which he lives in by his Holy Spirit. This is true of us individually as believers in Christ since we are dwelt by the Spirit and thus we are holy unto God. It's also true of us corporately since the church of Christ is the temple of the living God. Truly, the church of Christ is the wonder of the world. It's the most extraordinary structure that anyone has ever constructed. The stones in this massive building comes from all over the world as people from all nations come to worship Christ. We are living stones, not cold stones like ordinary construction materials, but alive with the power of the Holy Spirit. And furthermore, despite the weakness of its materials, this new and living temple is built to last. Why? Because it has been constructed on the precious cornerstone, Jesus Christ, who is the solid foundation of the church. The Bible says that in him the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple unto the Lord. And in him you also are being built into a dwelling place of God by his Spirit. As living stones, we are the construction material that God is using to build this spiritual temple. And knowing that God is building a spiritual temple gives us hope for the future. Since it's just us here this morning, let's be honest. Sometimes living and serving in the church can be discouraging. With all the troubles that Christians have getting along together, and with all the obstacles that we face in daily life, we wonder when, or even if, God is going to finish the work that he is doing in the church. Yet, this is typical of most building projects when the work is not completely done. It seems so far away from completion that it's hard to even imagine what it's going to look like once it's finished, if it ever gets finished at all. Eric Alexander gave a helpful illustration of this when he preached in London on the 350th anniversary of the Westminster Confession of Faith. At the end of his sermon, Alexander asked, What is the really important thing that is happening in our world in this generation? What is the most important thing? What do we need to look at in the modern world to see the most significant event from a divine perspective? He answered by saying, 
the most significant thing happening in history is that God is building the church of Jesus Christ. Then he said these words, the rest of history is simply the scaffolding for the real work. To illustrate his point, Alexander referred to the building where some of the meetings were being held in London's famous Westminster Abbey. He remarked that the last time he had been at the Abbey, its stone was black and the whole front of the building had been covered with scaffolding. But now he could see that something had been happening behind all that scaffolding. People have been busy clearing the building and working to bring out its true beauty. So when the scaffolding was finally taken down, the abbey was revealed in its pristine splendor of gleaming white stone. You know what? God is doing something similar in the church and in your life this morning. Even as hard as we are to work with, the Holy Spirit is using our lives as the material to make a spiritual temple. The problem is, while the scaffolding is still up, it's sometimes hard to see just how much work that God has really done in our lives. But a day is coming at the end of history when all the scaffolding will come down and we will see the wonder of the world, the glory of God in the church of Jesus Christ. Well, as we finish up this morning, few questions are easier to answer than, what is your career? But if someone asks, what is your calling, we tend to stammer and stutter. You make no mistake about it, all Christians are called people. We've not only been called to Christ, but by His grace, we've also been called by Christ for the furtherance of His purposes in this world. We are all people with a calling this morning. And that calling may include a career, but it's way bigger than that. It's the unique purpose of a holy God for our lives. It's that special place where our gifts, skills, and experiences connect with the needs of the world and the purposes of God's kingdom. Now Solomon had a career in that he was the king of a nation that needed to be developed and stabilized. But he also had a calling, a God-given mission not just to rule the people, but to make them a unique nation that centered upon the living God. Israel was to be like no other nation on earth. And when Solomon lived out his calling, the nation flourished. But when he just carried out his career, he will begin to make poor choices. But these chapters are going to show Solomon at his very best. A major part of the story of his life is directed to the construction of that temple. But behind that project, remember, there was a calling to center the nation on the living God by building a house for the glory of the name of the Lord. We'll come back next week and we'll mine some more treasures out of 1 Kings. Let us pray. And Father, I know in my own life just how slow and incremental my growth has been. Even after three and a half decades, I still seem like I'm so far away from where I wish I was. But God, I thank you that I'm far away from where you brought me at the beginning. You have changed me. And everyone in here that knows you, we may not be where we want to be, but thank God we're not where we used to be. So fill us with your spirit today, Lord. 
Reveal yourself to us and let us walk in your ways this week. We ask in your name. Amen. Stand and worship again. I didn't see you come up that way. I was still waiting on you. I worked.